duty at HBYC. Where's Wayne? Wayne here? Wayne? Wayne's with you. There's Wayne. Glad to see you, Wayne. When I got the application, I thought it was a mistake. <laughs> Wayne, Far Wayne Farnsworth isn't going down there, is he? You're a brave man. You made it. I hope it was a blessing. How many others have served at Baptist Youth Camp this summer? Anybody else? Mike? Mike? Jenna? Um, Shell? What a blessing. Justin's there this week. Please do continue to, to keep the camp in prayer. Uh, yes, and, and along the lines of back, you will see Mike and Kathy Page back there. Mike has finished his... Uh, <laughs> he, fulfilled, he fulfilled the pledge that was made. Mike has been interim pastor of the First Baptist Church in Bar Harbor for a year. And... Um, but don't ask Mike any hard questions because he's not back back. He's not back to work until uh, the 1st of September. He's back to worship, and he's uh, hopefully going to take some rest in between stints. Um, but we are grateful for Mike and his willingness to serve that way. We're grateful to God for letting us be a church that can send people to help our brothers and sisters in need. And we are thankful that the Baptist Church in Bar Harbor has called a pastor. And he's coming, uh, and he'll be preaching beginning in September. So um, praise the Lord. It worked the way it was supposed to, supposed to work. God is good. God is in control. We have much to be thankful for. Well, when we last heard from the people of Israel, they were in quite a bind, caught between an advancing army and an impassable sea. They had left Egypt under the command of Moses and the leadership of God, instead of Taking them the direct route to their destination, God chose to have them uh, double back and camp beside the Red Sea. In the meantime, their former uh, slave master, the Pharaoh of Egypt, changes his mind about letting the Israelites go, and he sends his soldiers after them. So with the full strength of the world's um, most powerful military hot on their heels and deep water staring them in the face, God's people are hemmed in, and there is no apparent way of escape. The situation seems pretty desperate. Quite naturally, they are terrified. They believe that they're about to suffer a gruesome death for leaving Egypt. They criticize Moses for leading them out. But he tells them not to be afraid. And he gives the order not that they should stand and fight, but that they should stand and wait for the salvation of the Lord. Father, as we sit under your word now, we humble ourselves under it. We pray that by your Spirit we would receive its full import into our lives, that we would indeed hear your voice, that you would speak to us, and that because of that we would be changed, made different, we pray made more holy, more like our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. So as Pharaoh's troops close in on Israel, God says something that seems kind of strange, I think, to Moses. He rebukes him in verse 15. Why do you cry to me? Why do you cry to me? Well, it seems strange because if Moses did cry out to God, that's not recorded here in this account. The scriptures say that the people cried out to God, and as we covered last week, we know that that cry was not a cry of faith. It was rather a cry of accusation, of criticism. That's corroborated, right, in Psalm 106, which says they rebelled at the Red Sea. Moses, on the other hand, has not demonstrated any of the faithlessness 
of the people. In fact, he's crying out to his people that they should have faith. He's telling his countrymen to have faith. Yet as their leader and the mediator for God's people, Moses appears to be held accountable by God for their behavior. They're the ones crying out. Moses is the one who is held responsible. God tells Moses to tell the people to go forward, though it doesn't seem that there's anywhere for them to go. And then the cloud, the visible presence of God with his people, moves from the front of the people, and it stands behind them. That's a literal example of the truth that God has the back of his people. And while the Egyptian army is in darkness, it's itching to attack. The scripture says the cloud brought that darkness to one side, but light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Egypt is kept in darkness. Israel has light with which to see. And if that sounds familiar, it ought to sound familiar, right? Because it mirrors the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, where Egypt was in blackness, a heavy blackness for three days. But the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. How does that happen? Only God can make that happen. God is the one who has full control over his creation. And this, in this little detail in this story is just another testimony to God's greatness. Just so we don't miss it, folks, there are a lot of interesting characters in the unfolding drama of the Exodus, but the main character in this story, the main character in this story is God. God is the star of the show, saving by his mighty hand, protecting his own. His people here on the shore of the Red Sea are in the light. His enemies are in darkness. Moses is told to lift up his staff and stretch out his hand over the sea. And while he might have known in his flesh that stretching out his human hand isn't really going to accomplish much, he is beyond those early days of doubt when confidence was in himself. Long before this moment, you see, the staff in Moses' hands, his staff had become the staff of God. And it was another uh, visible symbol of God's mighty power with his people, of his presence. So Moses knows that he, he can't do anything in and of himself, but if in obedience he would obey God, stretch out his hand, God is about to do something. So he follows the order, whether it makes sense or not. God did do something. All that night, while the enemies of God remained in darkness, the Lord drove the sea back in a strong east wind, turned it into dry land. God made a way for his people to escape. The waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea, walking on dry ground. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. That cannot be explained any other way, though people will try. Tim Chester writes about that. He says, attempts to explain it, that is the parting of the Red Sea, as anything less than an act of God, reveals more about us in our closed view of the world than the events in Exodus 14. Well, you're real quick on the trigger there, Gabby. Out she goes. Hi, Grace. 
You might have heard the theory perpetuated by many that the Israelites didn't really go through the Red Sea. And of course, the truth is we don't know exactly where they crossed. We don't know that location now. We can only surmise. But there's a theory out there. They didn't really cross the Red Sea. They crossed what was called the Reed Sea. That is a shallow lake. And that was probably just like a little scribal error there. They got things confused. You see, that kind of idea is more palatable, um, a more palatable, reasonable alternative to those who have a disdain for the miraculous. A lot of people have a disdain for the miraculous. If I can't understand it, if it doesn't fit in my head, then it couldn't have happened. Pastor Donald Bridge tells the story of one such person, a theologically liberal preacher visiting an African-American church. He was talking about this very story, the crossing of the Red Sea, and when he did, someone shouted, Praise the Lord! Taking all them children through the deep waters, what a mighty miracle! And this preacher who did not believe in miracles was annoyed at the intrusion and the outburst, so rather condescendingly he explained to them all that the Israelites were probably in a marshland with an ebbing tide. So they were simply wading through six inches of water. In response to which, the same voices before shouted, Praise the Lord! Drowning all them Egyptians in six inches of water! What a mighty miracle! The Bible here is unambiguous. The Red Sea is parted by a supernatural act of God. Moses stretches out his hand in obedience. God causes the winds to blow all night. The water stacks up on two sides. It creates a wall on the right, a wall on the left. That's in there twice in the text. In case you miss it the first time, you get it the second time around. A wall of water, okay? Same Hebrew word used to describe the walls of Jericho. Same Hebrew word used to describe the walls of Jerusalem that Nehemiah rebuilt. Not an ebbing tide, not a shallow lake, a divided sea with walls of water standing up on both sides. And between them, passage, safe passage on dry ground. These walls of water made by God are held in place by God for the duration of the Israelites' journey through the sea. And what happens next further attests to the truth that this is indeed miraculous. It's not natural. It's not coincidental. For as the Egyptian army follows the Israelites into the sea, the Lord from the pillar of fire and cloud throws them into a state of confusion. He makes their chariots undrivable. Now, mind you, chariots were the best military technology available. Top-of-the-line technology. I had an old boss once, not a fan of technology. He was pretty adamant. He was always saying, technology always over-promises and under-delivers. So if you're an IT guy here today, I apologize. I'm not saying that's always true, but most of us know the frustration of technology from time to time. This thing that's supposed to make our lives so much better ends up making us so frustrated. He was talking about computers, of course, and things like that. But nonetheless, this principle remains that man-made tools, whatever they are, are no match for God. And that's why the psalmist can say so exuberantly, Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
The wheels seem to be coming off. They're coming off the chariots of Egypt. Now, some have surmised that they were mired in the mud. If there, Listen, if there was mud there, God made it. Because the Israelites didn't walk through the mud, did they? What did they walk through? They walked through on dry ground. The NIV says that God caused the chariot wheels to come off. The ESV says they, they became clogged. I like the Bible in basic English. It says, and made the wheels of their war chariots to become stiff. Yeah, that was funny. No need to quibble over the details here, right? We get the point. God himself has rendered the chariots, has rendered the great fighting machines of Egypt to be useless. And in a wonderful twist, which is a wonderful twist if you have a thing for the underdog, or if you dislike bullies, the Egyptians are now the ones thrown into panic. They are panicking because they know what is happening. And they know why it is happening. And they yell to one another, let's get out of here. Let's get away from these Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And isn't that just what Moses said God would do? In Exodus 14, 14, right? The Lord will fight for you. You need only be Now Pharaoh's army is convinced that is what's happening. Now that revelation on their part was part of God's plan all along, you know, that all people might know that he is the Lord and that the glory belongs to him alone. Not to the Egyptian gods, but to God, the one true God. This is why God led Israel to this vulnerable place. This is why he hardened Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of his officials. This is, this is why he allowed them to see Israel as their servants when in fact they were gods. This is why they chased after them. This is why God lured the Egyptian army into the sea. Verse 4 of chapter 14, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he'll pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I will get glory. Verse 18 of chapter 14, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And here again we see this Old Testament book, which many uh, would believe perhaps to be kind of lifeless or dusty or just a story about Israel leaving uh, Egypt with a lot of repetition and obsolete details about some tabernacle thingy. We see again that this is truly an account of how God saves his people for his glory. You, beloved, are saved for the glory of God. It is God's glory to save you. We are saved for his glory. And God is passionate about his glory. And God defends his glory. God, God wants the glory. And he should be passionate about, about this glory because he deserves it. He alone deserves the glory. And then the Egyptians realize that God is fighting for the Israelites while they try to flee. They want to retreat. They were not afraid of the Israelites but they had seen enough to know that they should fear their God. Long ago, the prolific hymn writer Isaac Watts penned a song, When Israel Freed from Pharaoh's Hand, the lyric of which goes like this, Let every mountain, every flood retire 
and know the approaching God. The king of Israel, see him here. Tremble, thou earth, adore. comes the second half of the miracle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots, upon the horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. Interesting little detail there, when the morning appeared. The Egyptians believed in the God of the sun. Joel Gregory preached a sermon long ago in the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 5 and he said of that Egyptian god of the sun that he rose every morning a blazing success here the sun rises and this Egyptian god of the sun is impotent unable to save the Egyptian soldiers and as the Egyptians fled into the sea the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of it the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of the Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. And so Moses turns out to be a prophet again. Because he told those quivering Israelites on the beach, the Egyptians you see today you'll never see again. Not one of the threats to God's people remained. Hear that? Not one of the threats to God's people remained. The enemy is vanquished. Thoroughly complete. So what happened? What has happened here? Verses 30, 31 sum it up beautifully. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What we just covered is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Folks who don't profess any kind of faith are probably familiar with this particular story. And yes, it comes from the Old Testament. It causes some to wonder, does it have meaning for us today? But it does. What does it teach us? Well, it teaches us this, that God is mighty to save. And that if we are to be saved, we must look to him for salvation. That is not to say that God will always rescue his people. He doesn't do that. We have to remember that this miracle was first an event that took place in a specific time and for a specific place. It was not and it was never intended to be a blueprint for how God always handles or responds to every crisis in his children's lives. It's very tempting, but it's poor theology to draw some straight lines between what happened uh, then and there to our situation here and now. We look to identify in our own lives our own impossible, impassable Red Sea situations, and then we cry out to God and expect that he's going to radically change them and rescue us and grant us a miraculous deliverance, which he can do and which he may do, but he is not obligated this passage does not teach that God will because of our desire deliver us from our enemies it shows us that he is able to deliver us when it is his will when it fulfills his purpose for us and when it brings him glory so when we need saving and in this broken world we will at different times need saving on multiple level whatever we need saving from 
we find in this text the proof that God is mighty. And if we are to be saved, then we must look to Him for us. Excuse me? But there is more to this story, which might become clear when we put it when we put it in different words, when we read it and answer the question, what has happened this way? Through the obedience of obedience, God, for his glory and by his grace, saved sinners from their bondage, thoroughly defeats their enemies, makes them his own, free to serve him, What does that put you in mind? Do you see here when we put it this way? Limit the gospel. Do you see in the work of God through Moses a glimpse, a foretaste of the work of God through Christ? What God did through Moses in, in setting his people free, he did on a grander scale through Jesus. Hebrews 3 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. This awesome salvation of God at the Red Sea is a prelude. It points us to an even greater salvation of God, the salvation wrought through Christ. Through the obedience of a mediator, Jesus Christ. God, who because he loved the world sent his only begotten son into it, to save us, that whoever would believe in him, in his uh, atoning work on the cross, in his bearing in himself the penalty for the sins of the world, would not perish but would have everlasting life through the obedience of Jesus God for his glory and by his grace, grace being his unmerited favor, right? Nobody deserves it, nobody earns it. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. It is the gift of God. Saves sinners. For that is all the Israelites were. And that is all men and women ever are or can be. We are sinners. There is no one who is not a death-deserving sinner. There is no one who can save himself or herself. God must do it. And he has done it through his son. Save sinners from their bondage. What kind of bondage, Pastor? We are, according to Scripture, all slaves to sin. All in bondage to the power of sin. Powerless to free ourselves. Thoroughly defeats their enemy, the enemy of sin and its consequences, Death. The Bible says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus defeated death. Therefore, anyone who places faith in him will have everlasting life and makes them his own. Peter says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness and into light. God has, through Christ, drawn us to himself and made us his own people. 
so that we are his people and he is our God forevermore. Free. Free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Free to serve him. We are freed in Christ from allegiance to ourselves. We are freed in Christ from allegiance to this world to give our lives in service to him, which is where we will find the fulfillment that we've been looking for all along. That we were made by God and for God to serve him without fear. Beloved, there's so much fear in this world. Turn on the news and you see it and you feel it. In Christ, though, we are reconciled to God. We have nothing to fear. Think that through, would you? You have nothing to fear. You are in the hands of Almighty God. And he is able and mighty to save. We have nothing to fear in this world and certainly nothing in the new world which is to come, which is a place where every enemy that we now face, every threat, every burden to our souls, every heartache, every bit of sickness, pain, betrayal, loneliness, death, every enemy that we face today in this world will, beloved, for the believer, one day be vanquished completely. It's going to be lifeless. It's going to be harmless as the floating bodies of the Egyptian soldiers washing up on the shore. The story of the crossing of the Red Sea have meaning? You bet it does. Because it's a story about a God who is mighty. First through his prophet Moses, later through his own son, greater, better Moses, saves his people. Now let's wrap it up. On the other side of the Red Sea, the people are safe. The Egyptians are wiped out. God prevails. What does a great deliverance like this inspire? What does a great deliverance like this deserve? Worship. Worship. Great deliverance of God led the people to worship in song and in remembrance. That's exactly what we are going to do as we ready our hearts for the Lord's table. We are going to ponder the goodness of God to save us. We are going to sing a song and worship to him. And then we are going to remember at this table. Our concluding song this morning is what's called an antiphonal praise. It's number 160 if you're looking in the hymnal. And you may recognize it because it's a, uh, a verse and a callback kind of thing that allows for response. So some of us will sing the lead, and I pray some of you will sing the response. But stand and sing in worship to the Lord. We will.